0: You're listening to a PowetCast, an audio netcast from TV, P-O-W-E-T dot TV. it. Welcome back. If you've been with us for the last three weeks, then you know that this week we're going to talk about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Fit the Fourth. But first, Tom, Keith, and Colony here to review last week's episode, the binding theme of which was, apparently, music. If instead you're new to the netcast and or feel hopelessly lost, go ahead and listen to the first three episodes. It's okay, go on. We'll still be here when you get back. So I suspect some are curious about Marvin's music savvy. He seems to be a little more up to date on a modern day pop tunes than uh, the '70s Marvin
1: was. Well, the thing is, I I think in the book, Marvin is described as humming, uh, also Sprock Zarathustra, the dum 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 bottom that thing. Anyway,
0: I believe it's in the it's in the original radio program too.
2: No man has trolled these five million years into the very depths of time itself. Ah. Kind of
1: often. It is, but in the original radio program, he sings that and he sings rock and roll music by the Beatles, which I'm, I'm not really sure what Douglas Adams was thinking when he wrote that. I, I'm not that surprised that he cut it out of the book, but we decided... Well, I think Caleb made a Ben Folds joke, and uh, we decided to write that into the script. The reference to the song Underground...
2: Why underground?
1: Because everything is heavy
2: there. Everything's heavy underground!
0: So, so Keith already said he wasn't that great of a voice actor. How'd you feel about performing that song? When you walk... Shut
3: the bloody
4: computer up!
3: Well, the thing is, I didn't know that song ahead of time. So, uh... Yeah, I was terrified.
4: <laughs> Can we stabilize the X00547 by splitting our flight path tangentially?
3: The funny story about that is, if you listen to the original BBC thing, and I'm assuming this is the actor acting and pretending they can't sing, but it sounds about as good.
1: Since Keith wasn't familiar with it, we had to find the lyrics online, and then we had it playing very quietly in the background so that Keith could follow the music and uh, try to sing the right words.
0: <laughs> oh, so, so speaking of uh, musical choices, there were some, you feel, potentially ill-advised ones in this fit?
1: Yes.
5: <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, Colin's probably best suited to talk about him.
1: I'm just going to say that I I don't think that the Pink Panther theme was necessarily the best idea. The infamous Zaphod Beeblebrox, and the other of whom is Trisha McMillan, a rather nicely descended ape person that Arthur once met at a party in Islington. We used a lot of music from the Final Fantasy games in this, and uh, pretty much all of our bad choices could have been replaced by something good from Final Fantasy which pretty much would mean the entire soundtrack was by Final Fantasy. <laughs> I
0: believe it was during the Lady Cynthia Fitzmelton bit was actually one of your songs, wasn't it, Colin?
1: Um, yeah, there's, there's a little bit of my music in uh, <laughs> Fit the First, I believe. I don't know where else. For someone who rates a lot of his own original music, we
0: use
5: very little of it.
1: Just let me hear some of that rock and roll music Any old way you choose it It's for the backbeat, you can't lose it Any old time you use it
0: in fit the fourth, we spend a lot of time in the past with the computer known as Deep Thought, a sequence which presented plenty of production challenges of its own. Michael Babbler,
5: who has a funny last name, sorry, Mike. <laughs> but uh, he did Deep Thought, and I think he did a pretty good job on Deep Thought. Yeah, I was I was pretty happy with performance. Uh, came in there, sounded appropriately grave. He's no Emma Thompson, but you know what can he do? <laughs> I
0: should I should point out too that um, the name Magic Thighs the the joke is kind of lost. I feel unless you can see it written down.
5: Yeah, it really is. It's, <laughs> and I think we got that one right for a change. Uh, it actually sounds like Magic Thighs. The mouse effect was achieved by uh, uh, actually was actually achieved
1: based on a production note in the uh, original scripts. They had initially tried to uh, record the voices normally, and then use an electronic effect to raise the pitch, and uh, that this worked really, really badly, and eventually they ended up um, having the actors speak their lines slowly, and then speeding the tape up, and that's basically what we ended up doing, and in fact, we made the same mistake, we uh, played around a little bit with raising the pitch electronically, and it sounded absolutely terrible. So we just recorded all the lines like this, and then sped them up. They sound great.
0: So if I were to speed that up...
1: So we just recorded all the lines like
0: this. So this this was the last episode that you guys were able to finish editing, although we have a lot of recorded material for Fits 5 and 6. One of the disadvantages of
5: uh, doing something like this with your friends and your girlfriends and stuff like that is you've got to presuppose that you're actually going to be friends and girlfriends throughout the entire process. And, uh, yes, it didn't... Uh, it didn't work out that way. There is a, a relationship change and some people started talk stopped talking to other people and, and the recording process kind of fell apart a little bit. And
1: we were starting to burn out on the project a little bit. You can, you can really tell in this fit and also in five and six that a lot of people are reading their lines for the first time or don't quite grasp the jokes that they're speaking. So they're, putting the stress on the wrong words, they're pausing in inappropriate places. If we had put more effort into it, we would have gotten much better performances than you hear in a lot of cases here.
3: As I remember it, um, we did through most of five in a summer. One through five was all one summer. And we really didn't come back to it for quite a while. And by that time, we weren't able to get anybody's schedules to match. And that's why 90% of the stuff in five and six is unintentionally... Recorded separately,
0: I know I know in my case, I had to go back to school in the fall, so it was imperative that all the Za stuff got finished uh by the end of August.
5: well, you same here, I think I started my
0: second semester school after that, and of May to see after that, I was working the graveyard shift all summer so so when you guys saw me, um I had just woken up, so it was the afternoon, <laughs> I was all right out in bushy and like you know bouncing off the walls, if we ever play any of our outtakes. You'll probably hear that, and I'm just going, well, that's because you know, I've just gotten the Tenchi Muyo.
5: I, I, work, uh, <laughs> I work the graveyard shift now, and I'm bushy-tailed right now because I just got up at, like, five.
0: <laughs> so the cycle continues.
5: The cycle continues.
0: <laughs> well, Hitchhiker fans, it's time for Fit the Fourth. As always, be sure to check out the show notes at Powett TV. Tell us what you thought of the show. Subscribe to our iTunes channel and Whisper Sweet Nothings. Enjoy. I'd like to hear Enjoy.
6: Us presents The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. Fit the Fourth. It has been revealed to Arthur that the Earth has been built by the Magatheans and run by mice. Meanwhile, his companions have been confronted by something nasty— Probably certain death. Starring Caleb Gesslin in Song Course as Zephod Bubelbrox. Alice Ecker as Trillion, Christian Sorensen as Slotly Botfass and Bang Bang, Michael Babbler as Deep Thought, Craig Webber as Arthur Dent and Magic Thighs, Keith Everson as Eddie the Computer and Vroomfondel, Thomas Martinson as Ford Prefect, Benji Mouse, and Two, and Colin Gonyu as The Book, Marvin, Frankie Mouse, One, and
1: shooty. Arthur Dent, a perfectly ordinary Earthman, was rather surprised when his friend Ford Prefect suddenly revealed himself to be from a small planet somewhere in the vicinity of Betelgeuse, and not from Guildford after all. He was even more surprised when a few minutes later the Earth was unexpectedly demolished to make way for a new hyperspace bypass. But this was as nothing to their joint surprise when they were rescued from certain death by a stolen spaceship manned by Ford's semi-cousin the infamous Zaphod Beeblebrox and Trillian, a rather nice astrophysicist Arthur once met at a party in Islington. However, all four of them are soon totally overwhelmed with surprise when they discover that the ancient world of Magrathea a planet famed in legend for its surprising trade in manufacturing other planets is not as dead as it was supposed to be. For Zaphod, Ford, and Trillium, surprise is pushed to its very limits when this happens. Listen! And when Arthur Dent encounters Slaterbartfast, the Magrathian coastline designer who won an award for his work on Norway, and learns that the whole history of mankind was run for the benefit of a few white mice anyway. Surprise is no longer adequate, and he is forced to resort to astonishment.
2: Mice? What do you mean mice? I think we must be talking at cross-purposes. Mice to me mean the little white furry things with the cheese fixation, women standing screaming on tables in early 60s sitcoms. Earthman, it is sometimes hard to follow your mode of speech. Remember I
7: have been asleep inside this planet of Magrathea for five million years, and know little of these early 60s sitcoms of which you speak. These creatures you call mice, you see, are not quite as they appear. They are merely the protrusions in our dimension of vast, hyper-intelligent, pan-dimensional beings. The whole business with the cheese and the squeaking is just a front. A front? Oh yes, you see, the mice set up the whole Earth business as an epic experiment in behavioral psychology. A ten-million-year-old program.
2: No, look, you've got it the wrong way round. It was us. We used to do the experiments on them. A
7: ten-million-year-old
2: program in which
7: your planet Earth and its people formed the matrix of an organic computer. I gather that the mice did arrange for you humans to conduct some primitively staged experiments on them, just to check out how much you'd really learned. Give you the odd prod in the right direction. You know, the sort of thing. Suddenly running down the maze the wrong way, eating the wrong bit of cheese, or unexpectedly dropping dead of myzomatosis. Attention please, Slotty Bartfast would Slotty bar fast, and the visiting Earth creature please report immediately to the work reception area. Thank you. However, in the field management relations, they're absolutely shocking. Really? Yes, well, you see, every time they give me an order, I just want to jump on a table and scream! I I can
2: see how that would be a problem.
1: There are, of course, many problems connected with life, of which some of the most popular are Why are people born? Why do they die? And why do they spend so much time wearing digital watches? Many millions of years ago, a race of hyper-intelligent, pan-dimensional beings got so fed up with all the constant bickering about Brockian Ultra Cricket, a curious game which involved suddenly hitting people for no readily apparent reason and then running away, that they decided to sit down and solve the problem once and for all. And to this end, they built themselves a stupendous supercomputer, which was so amazingly intelligent that even before its databanks had been connected up, it had started from the first principles with, I think, therefore I am, and had got as far as deducing the existence of rice pudding and income tax before anyone managed to turn it off. Could a mere computer solve the problem of life, the universe, and everything? Fortunately for posterity, there exists a tape recording of what transpired when the computer was given this particularly monumental task. Arthur Dent stops off in Large Martfast's study to hear it.
8: Deep thought. The second greatest computer in the universe of time and space have been called into existence.
4: Your task, oh computer. No, no, wait a
8: minute. This isn't right. Deep thought. Speak, and I will hear. Are you not, as we designed you to be, the greatest, most powerful computer in all creation? I describe myself as the second greatest, and such I am.
6: But this is preposterous. Are you not a greater computer than the milliard gargantua brain in Maxim Megalon, which can count all the atoms in a star in a millisecond?
8: The milliard gargantua brain? A mere abacus. Mention it
4: not. And are you not a greater analyst than the Googleplex star thinker in the seventh galaxy of light and ingenuity, which can calculate the trajectory of every single dust particle throughout a five-week Aldebarian sand blizzard?
8: A five-week sand blizzard? You ask this of me who has contemplated the very vectors of the atoms of the Big Bang itself? Molest me not with this pocket calculator.
4: And are you not greater than the Omnicognate Neuron Wrangler which...
8: The great hyperbolic Omnicognate Neuron Wrangler can talk four legs off an Octaron megadonkey, but only I can persuade it to walk afterwards. Then what's the problem? I speak of none but the computer that is to come after me.
4: Oh, come on. I think this is getting needlessly messianic.
8: You know nothing of future time, and yet, in my teeming circuitry, I can navigate the infinite delta streams of future probability, and see that there must one day come a computer whose merest operational parameters I am not worthy to calculate, but which it will be my destiny eventually to design. Can we get on when asked the question? Speak.
4: Oh, deep thought computer. The task we have assigned to you to perform is this. We want you to tell us the answer.
8: The answer? The answer to what? Life. The universe. Everything.
4: Tricky.
6: But can you do it?
8: Yes, I can do it.
4: There is an answer. A simple answer?
8: Yes, life, the universe, and everything. There is an answer. But I'll need time to think about it.
4: What's happening? We demand admission!
2: Come on, you can't keep us out.
4: We demand that you cannot keep us out. Who are you? What do you want? We're busy.
2: I am Magic Thighs. And I demand that I am Vroomfrodno. It's alright, you don't need to demand that.
9: Alright, I'm Vroomfrodno. That is not a demand, that's a solid fact. What we demand is solid facts.
2: No, we don't. That is precisely what we don't demand. We don't demand solid facts.
9: What we demand is a total absence of solid facts. I demand that I may, or may not be,
2: vroom Who are you, anyway? We are philosophers. Though we may not be. Yes, we are. Oh, sorry.
9: We are quite definitely here as representatives of the amalgamated union of philosophers, sages, luminaries, and other professional thinking persons. And we want this machine off, and we want it off now!
2: What is all this? We demand that you get rid of it.
4: What's the problem?
2: I'll tell you what the problem is, mate. Demarcation, that's the problem. We demand that
9: demarcation may or may not
2: be the problem. You just let the machines get on with the adding up and we'll take care of the eternal verities, thank you very much. By law, the quest for the ultimate truth is quite clearly the inalienable prerogative of your working thinkers. Any bloody machine goes and actually finds it, we're straight out of a job, aren't we? I mean, what's the use of us sitting up all night, saying that there may... Or may not be. Or may not be a god if this machine comes along the next morning and gives you his bloody telephone number.
9: We demand guaranteed rigidly defined areas of doubt and uncertainty.
2: Might I make an observation at this point? You keep out of this, Metal Nose.
9: We demand that that machine not be allowed to think about this problem.
2: If I might make an observation. We'll go on strike! That's right, you'll have a national philosopher's strike on your hands. Who will that inconvenience?
9: Never mind who that'll inconvenience you, box of black legging binary bits. It'll hurt, Buster. It'll hurt.
8: If I might make an observation, all I wanted to say is that my circuits are now irrevocably committed to computing the answer to life, the universe, and everything. But the program will take me seven and a half million years to run.
6: Seven and a half million
8: years? Yes. I said I'd have to think about it, didn't I? And it occurs to me that running a program like this is bound to cause sensational public interest, and so any philosophers who are quick off the mark are going to clean up in the prediction business.
3: Prediction
8: business? Obviously. You just get on the pundit circuit. You all go on the chat shows and the color supplements and violently disagree with each other about the answer I'm eventually going to produce, and if you get yourselves clever agents, you'll be on the gravy train for life. Bloody
2: hell. No, that's what I call thinking. Here, Froomfundle, why do we never think of things like that?
9: I don't know. Think our minds must be too highly trained, Magic Thighs.
2: But I don't understand what all this has got to do with the Earth and mice and things. I will become clear
7: to you, Earthman. Are you not anxious to hear what the computer had to say seven and a half million years later? Oh, well, yes, of course, quite. Here is the recording of the events of that fateful day.
4: Seventy-five thousand generations ago, our ancestors set this program in motion.
6: An awesome project. (coughs) Deep Thought prepares to
8: speak. Good evening.
4: Good evening. Oh, Deep Thought, do you have...
8: The answer for you? Yes, I have. There really is one. There really is one.
4: To everything. To the great question of life, the universe... And everything?
6: Yes. And you're ready to give it to us? I am.
4: Now? Now. Wow.
8: I don't think you're going to like it. It doesn't matter. We must know it. Now? Yes, now. All right. Well? You're really not going to like it. Tell us. All right. The answer to everything. Yes. Life, the universe, and everything. Yes. Is. Yes. Is. Yes. Yes. 42. We're gonna get lynched, you know that. It was a tough assignment. 42? 42? I think the problem, such as it was, was too broadly based. You never actually stated what the question was. But it was the ultimate question. The question of life, the universe, and everything. Exactly. Now you know the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything is 42. All you need to do now is find out what the ultimate question is. All right. All right. All right. Can you please tell us the question? The ultimate question? Yes. Of life, the universe?
4: And everything.
8: And everything? Yes. Tricky. But can you do it? No. Oh, Oh, God. God. But I'll tell you who can. Who? Tell us. Tell us. I speak of none but the computer that is to come after me, the computer whose nearest operational parameters I am not worthy to calculate, and yet I will design it for you. A computer which can calculate the question to the ultimate answer, a computer of such infinite and subtle complexity that organic life itself will form part of its operational matrix, and yourselves shall take on new forms and go down into the computer to navigate its ten million year program, Yes, I shall design this computer for you, and I shall name it for you, and it shall be called the Earth. Oh,
6: what a dull name. So there you have it. Deep
7: Thought designed it, we built it, and you lived on it. And the Vogons came and destroyed it five minutes before the program was
2: completed.
7: Yes. Ten million years of planning and work just gone out like that. Well, that's bureaucracy for you. Well,
2: you know, this, all this explains a lot of things. All through my life, I've had this strange, unaccountable feeling that something was going on in the world, something big, even sinister, and no one would tell me what it was. No, that's just perfectly normal paranoia. Everyone in the
7: universe has that. Oh. Well, uh, perhaps that means that somewhere outside the universe... Maybe. Who cares? perhaps i'm old and tired but i always think that the chances of finding out what really is going on are so absurdly remote that the only thing to do is say hang the sense of it and just keep yourself occupied look at me i design coastlines i got an award for norway Where's the sense in that? None that I've been able to make out. I've been doing fjords all my life. For a fleeting moment, they became fashionable, and I get a major reward. In this replacement earth we're building, they've given me Africa to do. And of course, I'm doing it with all fjords, again, because I happen to like them. And I'm old-fashioned enough to think that they give a lovely baroque feel to a continent. And they tell me it's not equatorial enough. What does it matter? Science has achieved some wonderful things, of course, but I'd far rather be happy than write any day. And, uh, are you? No. That's where it all
2: falls down, of course. Oh. Pity. It sounded like quite a good lifestyle otherwise.
7: Attention, please. Slotty Bartfast with Slotty Bartfast and the visiting Earth creature, please report immediately to the work reception area. Immediately.
2: Come on, I suppose you would better go and see what they want. I seem to be having this tremendous difficulty with my lifestyle. As soon as I reach some kind of definite policy about what is my kind of music and my kind of restaurant and my kind of overdraft, people start blowing up my kind of planet and throwing me out of their kind of spaceships. It's so hard to build up anything coherent. I'm, I'm sorry, this must all sound rather fatuous to you. Yes, I thought so. Just forget I ever said it.
1: It is, of course, well known that careless talk costs lives, but the full scale of the problem is not always appreciated. For instance, at the very moment that Arthur Dent said, I seem to be having this tremendous difficulty with my lifestyle. A freak wormhole opened up in the fabric of the space-time continuum and carried his words far, far back in time, across almost infinite reaches of space to a distant galaxy where strange and warlike beings were poised on the brink of a frightful interstellar battle. The two opposing leaders were meeting for the last time, and a dreadful silence fell across the conference table as the commander of the Hohurgs, resplendent in his black jewelled battle shorts, gazed levelly at the Gugvant leader squatting opposite him, in a cloud of green, sweet-smelling steam, and with a million sleek and horribly bewebbed star cruisers poised to unleash electric death at his single word of command, challenged the vile creature to take back what it had said about his mother. The creature stirred in his sickly, broiling vapor, and at that very moment, the words I seem to be having this tremendous difficulty with my lifestyle drifted across the conference table. Unfortunately, in the Vlahurg tongue, this was the most dreadful insult imaginable, and there was nothing for it but to wage terrible war. Eventually, of course, after their galaxy had been decimated over a few thousand years, it was realized that the whole thing had been a ghastly mistake and so the two opposing battle fleets settled their few remaining differences in order to launch a joint attack on our galaxy, now positively identified as the source of the offending remark. For thousands more years, the mighty ships tore across the empty wastes of space and finally dived, screaming onto the planet Earth, where, due to a terrible miscalculation of scale, the entire battle fleet was accidentally swallowed by a small dog. Those who study the complex interplay of cause and effect in the history of the universe say that this is a sort of thing that is going on all the time, but are powerless to prevent it. It's It's just just life, they say. Meanwhile, Arthur Dent is about to discover the answer to the disturbing question posed in last week's installment. Are his companions, Ford, Zaphod, and Trillian, lying bleeding to death in a subterranean corridor? Or have they merely slipped out for a quick meal somewhere?
4: Arthur? You're safe!
2: Am I? Oh, good. Hi, Arthur. Um, come and join us! Ford! Trillian! Zaphod! What happened to you? Well, our hosts here attacked us with a fantastic, dismodulating anti-phase stun ray. And then invited us to this amazingly keen meal by way of making it up to us. Hosts? What hosts? I don't see any hosts.
10: Welcome to lunch, Earth creature. What? Who said that? Ah! There's a mouse
2: on the table! Oh, haven't you found her yet, Arthur? What? Oh. Oh, I see, yes. Yes, I just wasn't quite prepared for the full reality of it. Arthur, let me introduce you. This is Benji Mouse. Hi. And this is Frankie Mouse.
10: Nice to meet you.
6: It seems they control quite a large sector of the universe in our dimension. But aren't they... Yes, they're the mice that took me from the Earth. It seems our whole journey has been stage-managed from the beginning. Um, excuse me?
10: Yes, thank you. Slotty bot, fast. You may go.
7: Oh, what? Oh, very well. Thank you, sir. I'll... I'll just go and get on with some of my fjords, then.
10: Uh, in fact, that won't be necessary. We won't be requiring the New Earth after all. We've had this rather interesting proposition put to us.
7: What? You can't mean that. I've got a thousand glaciers poised and ready to roll over Africa.
10: Well, perhaps you can take a quick skiing holiday before you dismantle them.
7: Skiing holiday? Those glaciers are works of art elegantly sculptured contours, soaring pinnacles of ice, deep majestic ravines, it would be sacrilege to go skiing on high art.
10: Thank you, fast. that will be all.
7: Yes, sir, thank you very much, sir. Well, goodbye Earthman, hope the lifestyle
2: comes together. Goodbye then, uh, sorry uh. about the fjords.
10: Now, to business.
2: TO, to BUSINESS!
10: I beg your pardon?
6: I'm sorry, I thought you were proposing a toast.
10: Now, Earth creature, we have, as you know, been more or less running your planet for the last ten million years in order to find this wretched thing called the ultimate question. Why? No, we already thought of that one, but it doesn't fit the answer. Why? Forty-two. You see, it doesn't work.
2: No, no, I mean, why have you been doing it?
10: Well, eventually just habit, I think, to be brutally honest. And this is more or less the point. We're sick to the teeth of the whole thing, and this prospect of doing it all over on account of those win-it-ridden vogons, quite frankly, gives me the
7: screaming heebie-jeebies!
10: You know what I mean? We've been offered a quite enormously fat contract to do the 5D TV chat show and lecture circuit, and I'm very much inclined to take it.
2: I would. Wouldn't you,
10: I mean, yes, idealism, yes, the dignity of pure research, yes, the pursuit of truth in all its forms, but there comes a point, I'm afraid, when you begin to suspect that if there's any real truth, it's that the entire multidimensional infinity of the universe is almost certainly being run by a bunch of maniacs. And if it comes to a choice between spending another ten million years finding that out, and on the other hand just taking the money and running, then I, for one, can do with the exercise.
2: But that's exactly the attitude those philosophers took. Does no one in this galaxy do anything other than appear in chat shows?
10: The point is, we are in a position to give you a very important commission. We still want to find the ultimate question because it gives us a lot of bargaining muscle with the 5D TV companies, so it's worth a lot of money. I mean, quite clearly, if we're sitting there looking very relaxed in the studio, mentioning that we happen to know the answer to life, the universe, and everything, and then eventually have to admit that it's 42, then I think the show's probably quite short.
2: Yes, but that, doesn't that mean you've got to go through your whole 10 million year program again?
10: We think there might be a shortcut. Your agent... That's me. ...is it. Your agent has suggested that both you and the Earth Girl, as last generation products of the Computer Matrix, are probably in an ideal position to find the question for us and find it quickly. Go out and find it, and it'll make you a reasonably rich man.
0: We'll ring up for it. Extremely rich.
10: All right, extremely rich. You drive a hard bargain, Beetle Brox. Emergency, emergency. Hostile ship has landed on the planet. Intruders now the works reception area. Defense stations, defense stations. Hell's bells. What is it Heaven,
2: now? Hell's bad We want Please? Yeah, it's a special displaycraft was done. i left them note explaining how they could make a
6: profit on their insurance plan. But it doesn't seem to have worked. Come on then, let's move!
10: Earthman, find the question. How? Oh. Uh no, that doesn't work either.
6: We'll find it. Come on, get out of here! Thanks for the mail, guys! Sorry, I've got to rush. Which way do you reckon, Zephard? i At a wild guess I'd say down here.
1: Okay, Brox, hold it right there, we've got you covered.
6: You wanna try a guess it all, Ford? Okay, uh, this way.
1: We don't wanna shoot ya,
2: Brox. It's me fine! We're cornered! Hell. I have dropped my adrenaline pills. Alright, behind this computer bank, get down. Hey, they're shooting at us! Yeah. yeah. I thought they said they didn't want to do that! Yeah, I thought they said that! Hey! Yeah, I thought you said you didn't want to shoot us!
1: It isn't easy being a cop! What did he
2: say?
6: He said is isn't easy being a cop. Well, surely that's his problem, isn't it? I would've thought so. Hey listen, I think we've got enough problems of our own with you shooting at us, so if you could avoid laying your problems on us as well, I think we'd probably find it easier to cope.
7: Now see here, buddy, you're not dealing with any dumb two-bit trigger-pumping morons with low hairlines, little piggy-eyes, and no conversation. We're a couple of intelligent, caring guys who you'd probably quite like to meet us socially. That's right, I'm really sensitive. I don't go around gratuitously shooting people and then bragging about it in seedy Space Ranger bars. I go around gratuitously shooting people and then agonizing about it afterwards to my girlfriend.
1: And I write novels!
7: Yeah, he writes
6: them in crayon.
1: Though I haven't had any of them published yet, so I better warn you, I'm in a mean mood.
6: Who are these guys? I think I preferred it when they were shooting.
1: So are you
7: gonna come out quietly, or are you gonna go, uh, let us blast you out?
6: Which would you rather?
7: You still there? Yes. yes! We didn't enjoy that at all.
6: We could tell. Zephard, have you any ideas how we're going to deal with these noise?
7: Now listen to this, Beeble Brox, and you better listen good. Why? Because it's going to be very intelligent, and quite interesting, and humane.
0: Okay. Far
7: away.
6: No, I mean...
7: Oh, sorry! Misunderstanding there! Nice one, safe Alright, Brocks, either you all give yourselves up now and let us beat you up a bit, though not very much, of course, because we are firmly opposed to needless violence. Or we'll blow up this entire planet, and possibly one or two others we noticed in our way here.
4: But that's crazy! You wouldn't blow up this entire planet just to get a bloody spaceship back!
7: Yes, we would. I think we would, wouldn't we? Oh, we'd
1: have to, no question.
7: But why? Tell her. Because there are some things you've got to do, even if you are an enlightened liberal cop who knows all about sensitivity and everything.
8: I just don't believe these guys. Wankers. Shall we shoot them again for a bit?
4: Yeah, why not? We're not going to be safe behind this computer bank for much longer, fellas. It's been really nice knowing you. I, I just want to say that. Yeah,
6: it's been really great. And it was really nice bumping into you again, Tifa. I wish I hadn't dropped my adrenaline pills. The computer bank has absorbed a hell of all of energy. I think it's about to blow.
2: It's a shame we never managed to get the work done revising that block. I thought it looked kind rather of promising. The am to guide to the galaxy. Look, I hate to say this,
6: but this thing's really gonna
1: blow up. <laughs> Assuming our heroes survive this latest reversal in their fortunes, will they find somewhere reasonably interesting to go now? Will Arthur Dent or Trillian manage to find the question to the ultimate answer? Who will they meet at the restaurant at the end of the universe? Find out in next week's exciting installment of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy.
6: The ultimate answer to life, the universe, and everything was revealed by the kind permission of the amalgamated union of philosophers, sages, luminaries, and other professional thinking persons.
0: Alright, boys, girls, little freak creatures for Alpha Centauri, that is all we have for episode 4. Fit the 4th, produced by Not Them Productions, Colin Gagne, director Thomas Martinson, script supervisor Thomas Martinson, sound engineer Keith Everson, sound editor Colin Gagne, final mix by Colin Gagne. This netcast is produced for Power TV by Sean Orange. Bandwidth and production assistance for this episode provided by That'sOrange.com. The story is not yet complete. There are six fits in the proper primary phase, and we actually recorded all of them. Mostly we got to give these guys enough time to wrap things up, so next week, instead of the complete Fit the Fifth, we're going to bring in Caleb, a.k.a. Phil Bond, to talk with us about playing Zaphod, reminisce about originally doing Fit the Fifth as a forensics piece, and share some behind-the-scenes clips from our original recording session for that episode. We won't hear the fit in its entirety, but I promise we'll hear a lot about it. And Colin swears.
1: I can't do it anymore, but I did train myself to sing a chord in the mid-90s, and it was difficult.
0: Until next time.